God's creation and particularly God's paradise includes a singular command to eat of every tree, but not this one tree. You're listening to Genesis, a sermon series preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. but the word of our God stands firm forever. And so, Lord, we thank you that we can open Scripture this morning by the power of the Spirit to make not only interpretation, but good application. And so we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would be our teacher this morning, that you would instruct us, encourage us. Lord, allow us to see Christ, to behold him for his glory. And Lord, as later we take communion together, and we consider the wondrous work of your precious son. Lord, we're thankful that we have the freedom to meet here this morning. So minister to us uh, by the spirit of God, we pray as we study this text. And all who agree said, amen. Amen. Well, according to a Greek legend in ancient Athens, a man noticed the great storyteller Aesop who was playing childish games with some little boys. And so this Athenian started laughing and actually jeering at Aesop. And he asked him, why are you wasting your time with such frivolous activity? And Aesop responded by picking up a bow and he began to loosen its strings and he laid it at the man's feet. And he said to him, answer this riddle if you can. What does this unstrung bow imply? Well, the man just stared at the bow with no arrows and had no idea what he was getting at. And so Aesop realizing he didn't get it, he, he explained to him, he said, if you always keep a bow bent, it will eventually break. But if you let it go slack, it will be more fit for use when you do want to use it. Now, as we open up the second chapter of the book of Genesis, indeed, only the second chapter in all of our Bibles, this morning, we're going to see and study the origin of work. Work is a very misunderstood term or idea by many, and that's an understatement. There's many who hate their work. They avoid it. They do the old Dave Ramsey song, I owe, I owe, so it's off to work I go. They just despise work, do everything I can do to not actually work. So clock in late uh, and clock out early. Uh, Work is something we avoid, and so just put 50% or less of your effort into it. Live for the weekend. Uh, Do what you can do to take long vacation uh, days and milk those days and then spend, when you're actually on the clock, spend hours texting or on YouTube or on social media. So that's one extreme of work, an unhealthy view of it. But then there's another extreme on the other end, which is also very unhealthy, where work becomes our identity and we focus simply on success or a payday. And many Americans would say, work is what I do to make money so I can go one day and do what I want to do. Or if we were to Christianize that, we would say, well, the caveat is that I make money so I can do what God wants me to do. So work simply becomes labor for 40 years and then look ahead to retirement 
which seems to be this ideal place of maybe like heaven. For those of you who are retired, you know it's not exactly that at all. When we think once that happens, that's it. I'm going to stop working. I'm going to sit back and enjoy the fruit of my labor. I'm going to collect seashells and buy myself a classic car and just indulge in life. Is that the American dream? Is this how God created or intended work to actually be? So last week we studied Genesis chapter two, verses one through three, and Pastor Micah taught us that God rested from his creative work after examining everything that he had made, and he called it what? Do you remember what he called it? He looked at creation and he called it very good. The creator God, think of that, he took a day of rest that in a sense continues on because of the redemptive work of Christ for all believers. And so now we work not for our salvation, but we rest as we're welcomed into Christ, we rest solely on the merits of Christ. But that doesn't mean there's now no work to do. In fact, Ephesians 2, 10 says that we were created in Christ Jesus to do good work or good works. And so work, as we'll see today in our text, was instituted before the fall. It's not that Adam fell and then, oh, because of that fall, now you have work to do and it's going to be hard work. No, we realize our work is now cursed, but there's still much that we can learn about God's design for industry, for production, and for cultivating what he has stewarded to us. So in our text this morning, we're actually going to learn a lot more than just the origin of work. If you're taking notes, we're going to learn today the formation of man in verses 4 through 7. We're going to see the foundation of Eden in verses 8 through 15, and how many of us look back to Eden as the ideal, and yet we actually have a better thing we can look to. And then we'll see the forbidden tree, which is a bit of a foreshadowing of what's to come in verses 16 and 17. Now, in this original garden paradise, we are going to learn in this text how work and worship are actually connected and why God put man to work in the first place. Though everything God created was very good, as you just told me, today we will see something that's not good. And we'll develop that thought next week on Mother's Day when we see God saying there's something not good, and that's that this man I've created is alone. So I must create a suitable, perfect fit for Adam in this woman Eve. And next week we'll look at the origin of woman, the origin of marriage, we'll celebrate moms together, as we uh, finish chapter two. But today, let's look at verse four and first see the formation of man. Notice with me, Adam, uh, we're told, it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, from verse four, we have quite a few uh, important points to make. So first of all, This phrase, these are the generations, that's a very important Hebrew word. The word for generations is toledot. And a a toledot is always the beginning of a section or the beginning of uh, an important season or even genealogy. So the next time that we see it, it's here in chapter two, verse four. The next time we see it is all the way in Genesis chapter five. And in Genesis chapter five, it's not just showing something's origin, but it's actually marking out a family's history or someone's posterity. And so in the book of Genesis, we're going to see 10 of these toledots. In fact, let me just give you a few of them on the screen, just a few examples. We're going to see in chapter 5 the generations of Adam. And then in verse, chapter 6, verse 9, we see, the, uh, we see the generations of Noah. 
And then in chapter 10, we see uh, the generations of the sons of Noah. Uh, and then we see in chapter 11 what really could be, we could argue this is the uh, generations of Abraham, but it's Terah. Uh, then we'll see in 2519 and 372 the generations of Isaac and of Jacob. So that's the first thing to note. This is beginning an absolutely new section. But secondly, chapter 2 does not begin a second creation account, as some um, erroneously teach. Uh, so in typical Hebrew literature, the, often a statement or truth will be made, and then it will be made again in a secondary way that goes back in and sort of restates the same idea in a descriptive way. So if you're reading the Proverbs, you'll see there are three things, even four. It describes three things and comes back and, and adds uh, some more description. And so we have already seen in chapter one, God creating the heavens and the earth in six literal days. And then he takes the seventh day to rest. So then when we come to chapter two, verse four, we have the temptation to say, oh, this is another creation. In fact, someone between services came up and said that's what uh, one person she knows has taught through the years, that this is a second creation. And yet we don't get that from the text. This, this chapter is more logical than chronological. And so we have to understand, as one person points out, that this is a recapitulation or a coloring in of the lines. You guys remember in school, you would draw, connect the dots, and then you'd go back in and color in the lines. And so note what this person said. They said, while Genesis 1 describes a progression from chaos uh, chaos to cosmos, or disorder to order, chapter two follows a different pattern. Perhaps the literary thread which runs throughout the passage, remember chapter one was evening, morning, the first day, evening, morning, the second day. God said, and there was. So this chapter, the literary thread, is that of God's creative activity in supplying those things which are deficient. So for example, uh, when we look here, we see that there, is, uh, there are no shrubs, there are no plants, there's no rain. And so what does God do in this chapter? He supplies the mist and he supplies the rivers. We see that there's garden. There's garden ground, but there's no man to work it. So God supplies the man. And then once there is a man, there's no suitable helper from the animal kingdom to come alongside him and support his work. And so God supplies, as we'll see next week, the woman. Thus, you can consider verse four as an introduction and the rest of chapter four, or chapter two, as a picture of God's gracious supply. So verse four, not only that, also it introduces to us a new name for God that we have yet to hear. In our ESVs, it simply should read the Lord God, but these are actually the Hebrew terms Yahweh Elohim. In fact, I want you to do this. Get your eyes in verse Four for a moment, and you should notice with me, no matter what translation you have, that the word Lord, the name Lord is in all caps. Do you guys see that? So this is not the title Lord, as in Lord and servant. This is actually the name of God. This name was so hallowed that the Hebrews did not want to misuse it and thus break the third commandment. And so they removed the vowels and left the consonants which are very difficult to transliterate. All we have is Y-H-W-H. How do you pronounce that? The best way to pronounce that is Yahweh. 
And so as creator, God has revealed himself as Elohim. But now as he begins to relate to, as he begins to interact with his creation, with man particularly, he is now communicating who he is as Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel. Look at verse 5. It says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Now, we have to just pause here for a minute. This world pre-flood is very different than the world we live in today. And we use that phrase to describe pre-flood. We use the phrase antediluvian. Vastly different than the world we live in today. Vastly different from the hospitable planet we enjoy. So if we look at the text, there was, there was no edible, there were no edible crops. There were ostensibly no clouds. There's no rain. So the water cycle at that time consisted of a subterranean mist that watered the soil. And then as we look back in chapter one, day three, God had separated the seas from the dry land. But now this dry land needed to be worked. It needed to be farmed. It needed to be sustained and it needed to be cultivated. And so verse seven specifically tells us how God created man on the sixth day. We're used to this usual pattern of what we saw in chapter one of let there be, and there was. Let there be light, and there was light. Uh, And instead, in verse seven, look with me how sovereign and how personal God creates mankind. Verse seven, note these words. Then the Lord God, here's the word, formed. Formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. God formed the man and he breathed into his nostrils. Yahweh Elohim took dust. So think about that. God takes the pre-existing materials of the remnants of dirt and he fashions mankind into his own image. A lot of us show up on a Sunday morning and we, we think, you know what? I'm pretty all that. I, I, I'm an important person in this church. I look around, I'm very important. And yet we're reminded from scripture that we're actually dust. That's actually what we're composed of. We came from dust. And actually, Scripture reminds us that we're going to return to dust one day. Lest we get uh, too impressed with ourselves, you're an impressive collection of dust. But in the end, we will return to dust. In fact, Genesis 3.19, Genesis 18.31, Ecclesiastes 3.20 reminds us we came from dust, we'll return to dust. Often at a graveside, we'll hear those familiar words, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. In fact, when I've been asked to preside at a graveside, a committal or internment, I'll often read these words from the Book of Common Prayer. It says, we therefore commit his or her body to the ground, earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But then I go on to say what the Book of Common Prayer says, ensure and certain hope of the resurrection to eternal life through our Lord Jesus Christ who shall change the body of our low estate that it may be like unto his glorious body according to the mighty working whereby he's able to subdue all things to himself. So though we will return to dust, that's not the end state, is it? No, the scripture says we'll be resurrected in glory. So from the dust here, God forms 
man. And don't overlook this. This is really a relationship between the craftsman and his craft, between the artisan and his masterpiece. He fashions man, he forms man. And hasn't he done that with each one of us? No, not from the dust, but Psalm 139 reminds us to praise God. Why? For I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. The psalmist says, wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. So we see God, we see God fashioning Adam from the dust of the earth, and we see uh, each one of us. We were fashioned fearfully and wonderfully in our mother's womb. There's that sovereign and intimate creation. But not only does God form man from the dust of the earth, verse 7 tells us that God breathed into him the breath of life into his nostrils. Man there becomes a, in the Hebrew, a nefesh hayah, a living, literally, a living soul, living creature. Now, it's interesting that the animals created on day six were also called living creatures. So when we talk about life or death, I think there's a misunderstanding. We talk about life or death, and when sin entered the world, death through sin. What we do not mean by death through sin is that plants or cells or viruses cease functioning. That's not what we mean by death. What we mean is that those who have been given the breath of life are now mortal. They can actually be separated from their body. And so until, this is categorically different than plants or decaying cells. We actually need cells to split and cease functioning for cellular mitosis and life to exist. And so it's not referring to that. Until the fall of man, this nefesh hayah, this living creature had life and death was an intruding enemy. Uh, And so when Adam sins, death intrudes upon our DNA. And now humans and animals who have been given the breath of life are subject to death. Now this is important. This formation of man is very important because notice what we don't see here. What we don't see is that the text does not say, and I'd love to chat later with any of you, the text does not say that over billions of years, in verse 7, the Lord God uh, took some living hominids and stamped his image of God on one of them after they were progressing over time and went from being ape-like to upright. And therefore, uh, because God breathed his breath of life into that particular hominid, that has the image of God. No, it doesn't tell us that. It tells us that this is very particular, this is very specific, this is very intentional. God formed him from dust, not from apes. And so we can just take the word uh, literally. And so notice that God doesn't just create him and then leave him there. He actually has a job for him to do, a function for him to do. And so let's look at this second section, the foundation of Eden, starting in verse eight. It says, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God, there's that phrase again, Yahweh Elohim, made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So this garden, where is it? Everyone wants to know, where's the garden of Eden? We want to go back there. I'm going to go there on vacation. So uh, we do know the garden would have most likely been in the fertile crescent in the east. We know that it says in Eden, in the east, uh, presumably ancient Mesopotamia. 
If you want to know what the name Eden means, it means in Hebrew, a place of pleasure. And certainly, it was a garden paradise filled with pleasurable things. Uh, Not only beautiful landscape, we see that the tree was pleasant to the sight. It was a beautiful sight to behold, but notice that it was also good for food, culinary delight. And so we could argue that the, the trees that we enjoy, like the mango, the lime, the lemon, the, the apricot, the coconut, the almond, the cherry, uh, the variety of trees that, that yield berries for foraging, all of these would have been in the garden utopia. There's still a question mark, was grapefruit in the garden? It, says, it, it doesn't say it was delicious to eat, it just says good for food, and we know it's good for food, so maybe it's there, we don't know. But verse 9 tells us that out of the ground, Yahweh Elohim made to spring up every tree. Trees that are good to the sight and good for food. But there's two more trees of singular importance. There's the tree of life and there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now you want to circle those two trees, obviously ostensibly the two most important trees. The tree of life uh, is referenced to uh, a few times in the scripture notably here and in Proverbs, and especially in Revelation. So at the end of our scripture, Revelation 22 tells us, it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. We look forward to a, a day yet when we together as the people of God will partake of this tree of life. Now, some have suggested that Adam would eat regularly from the tree of life, and that's what gave him life, but we don't read that anywhere in the text. In fact, on the contrary, he already has life because God has breathed into him uh, and made him a living creature. I don't believe he was reliant upon the tree of life for eternal life. Now, there's another tree here, isn't there? There's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we'll look at that in just a moment, but for now, look with me at verse 10. There's some more details about this garden. It says, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there that river divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It's the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, and apparently there's good gold, delium, and onyx in this land. Then the second river, verse 13, is the Gihon, and it flowed around the land of Cush. Well, then we have two rivers that we recognize. We have the Tigris and the Euphrates. Now, it's suggested by many and was pointed out to me in between services that uh, the mountain or the garden was actually most likely on a mountaintop. Uh, And the reason we believe that is if if we have four rivers flowing out from it, typically rivers are going to flow downhill. And so if there's a headspring of four rivers, that that needs to be an elevated place, a mountain. Not only that, but Ezekiel 28, 18 actually speaks of the mountain of Eden. And so there's this idea that scholars get very excited about uh, when they speak about the mountains of God throughout scripture. And so this is sort of the mount, uh, a temple mount, if you would, a, a place Uh, of great significance and even uh, a sacred space, a temple-like space. And I'll make that argument in just a moment. But uh, the the question then comes in, where is this? Where could this be? Is there a place where all four of these rivers today flow out of? 
Because especially if we could get a group of people and find where Havila is, there's good gold there. And so we're gonna have some investors, we're gonna find the good gold, we just need to find Havila. Well, see, the, the problem is that we don't today find a shared headspring uh, with the, Tiger, the current Tigris and Euphrates rivers. We don't. There's no shared uh, headspring. And so geographically, we have to remember that the flood of Noah would have completely changed the topography of the earth. John Calvin believed that, uh, that the flood came and drastically changed the landscape. And so what I believe is happening here is that Noah's descendants would later use two of the names that were used prior. And they would use the name Tigris and Euphrates to describe two different rivers that formed after the flood. And so we have no idea. Uh, we would just most likely argue that Eden itself was wiped away uh, in the flood of Noah. So I'm sorry about that. If you want to go vacation there, it's not going to happen. So look with me at verse 15, very important verse. Verse 15 says, the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, took Adam and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. I'd like for you to circle those two verbs, to work it and to keep it. These words actually have very little to do with agriculture and almost everything to do with the temple. So the word to work it can also be translated to serve or even to worship. When you would use this word in the Levitical tabernacle duties, you would say that the Levites came to work or to serve Yahweh in the temple. And then the word to keep it, it's commonly used for the priestly service of worship. And you would even use it in legal text to observe religious commands and duties. So Israel is to keep the commandments. So it's a word not only used in that way, but also for the Levites to protect the tabernacle from intruders. And so Moses writing these two words together to describe Adam's role as one who works and keeps this garden paradise, this is actually showcasing not that he's a farmer as much as he is a priest. He is called to be in the priestly service in the garden temple. You see, God's priestly representative, Adam, is called to be a mediator between God and mankind. He's to relate with God on behalf of the people, and he's also to reflect God's character of truth and justice and goodness and mercy to creation. He was called to care for the sacred space and cultivate the shalom, the peace, the wholeness that God alone had established in the cosmos but he was also to safeguard God's name and God's truth. He was to be a representative of Yahweh. And we saw last week at Easter how he failed in that mediation and in that representation. But in that idyllic garden, Adam is given this priestly work to do. And then he's also given a singular command. Let's look at this third section, the forbidden tree, verse 16. It says, and Yahweh Elohim commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, just really quick, we gotta, we've got to make this point. <laughs> uh, there is no mention anywhere here of what kind of fruit this is. So please don't be that guy and say, Adam ate an apple. Okay, we don't, we don't know that it was an apple. It would have been a fruit that, that was very distinct, and he was clearly uh, told not to eat it, okay? So don't be that guy. 
We don't know what fruit it is. Um, there are other ancient Near East texts and traditions that speak of a tree of life in a very different way than what the scripture says, but they do mention one. However, not a single ancient Near East text uh, mentions this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now you told me earlier, didn't you, that everything God created was, you told me, I'm taking your word for it. You said it was very good. How could God look at a tree that could produce the knowledge of good and evil? And how could God say that that's very good? Well, we can say it's very good because it served a good purpose. There was a clear command to Adam, don't eat. Eat of every tree, but don't eat of this one. Clear command, clear consequence. What's the consequence? If you eat of it, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, this is not speaking about physical death as if the exact day within 24-hour period, if Adam eats of that fruit, it's poison and he's going to physically perish, be separated from his body. That's not the idea. But this is speaking about the spiritual separation that mankind would experience if we transgress God's law. So this death speaks of the certainty of death. And we learned from Romans 5 recently that this death entered the world through sin. So how can this be something that God declares very good? Well, much in the same way that if you have children who are little and you have a stove and you warn your kids, don't touch the burner. Uh, and you've probably got children who are the ones that learn the hard way. And so they go, which burner? I'm not supposed to, oh, that one? And then they put their hand on it and they, what happens? The consequence is very bad but the consequence doesn't negate the fact that the stove can be used for very good reasons. Uh, and so God's creation, and particularly God's paradise, includes a singular command to eat of every tree, but not this one tree. And so this in no way means that God's provision of this tree is evil. It's actually a part of his gracious, sovereign plan. Now, let's turn the page. We know what happens, but because we're here, let's turn the page or literally glance over to chapter three in your Bibles. Let's see what happens here. God had commanded, do not eat of it, but he also commanded, eat of every tree. We always forget the positive affirmation of the command. Eat of every tree, help yourself. Do not eat of the tree. Now look at chapter three, verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And the serpent said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Just not to read into this theologically, but I think it's fascinating that the devil does not say, did Yahweh Elohim? But he just says Elohim. Did God actually say, you shall not eat? Now, what should the answer be here? The answer, of course, should be, yeah, he did. Absolutely. I mean, Eve's answer should have been, si, senor, uh, like, yavo, we. <laughs> uh, oui. I mean, it should have been an easy yes. But notice what she says. The woman said to the serpent, that's the, probably the first problem, don't answer the serpent, just keep on walking. But she says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. She got that part right. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Got that right. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Wait, what? We got the record scratch on that one. Okay, that's not what God said. God nowhere says, do not touch the tree. And so she's now misquoting God. How many times church has God been misquoted? Uh, people say, oh, the Bible says. You're like, that's not in the Bible even remotely. Uh, and so notice what verse four 
gives us. It says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. So deception always begins with questioning God's word. Did God actually say? But then it progresses very quickly, often in the same generation, but many times in the next generation. With questioning God's word, then our kids contradict God's word. And then it ends up with tagging an attribute to God that is not true of his nature. So let me just show you this on the screen. Deception, or currently we call this deconstruction. Deconstruction or deception happens when we question God's word. Oh, did God actually say that? Does the word actually say? Then we directly contradict God's word. I don't think that's what it says. And then we begin to misrepresent the attributes of God. And so Satan goes on to, sort of the serpent goes on to say, God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You'll be like him. It's a misrepresentation of God's design and God's desire. Well, we know what happens. Look at verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, like all the other trees, that it was a delight to the eyes, like all the other trees, that it, the tree was desired to make one wise. There's the key. She took of its fruit and she ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. We'll get, we'll, we'll get on his case in a few weeks. And he ate. And then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves loincloths. Not a helpful solution. You see, this tree is not good and evil. This tree is the knowledge of good and evil. It bears with it the concept of knowing what is good and what is evil. Previously, Adam and Eve are naked and without shame. And now because of their rebellion, because of their sin, they are seeking to hide their shame, to hide their nakedness and to hide their very presence from God. And we know that all of the despair and all of the destruction that has plagued our planet since that moment in the garden, it has become unleashed. And we'll dive more into that when we get to chapter three in the next few weeks. Next week, we'll study the conclusion of chapter two and how important marriage and motherhood are for God's design in this world. And even though in this chapter, we see the grace and the goodness and the provision of God throughout this recapitulation of creation, we also have, don't we, a frame of reference to some impending dangers coming. So we read chapter two, we read about a garden that needs man to tend it and keep it, but we know what the outcome is, that man is gonna be banished from that garden, it's gonna be empty again. We read about land that has good gold, and yet we look throughout time at how much atrocity has been committed in the name of land with good gold. But most ominous of all, we read the warning, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And we know that soon, in an indeterminate amount of time, Adam and his wife will transgress that command. Sin and death will be perpetual realities and the working and keeping of what God has given us is gonna be marred by the curse. But here's our hope. And this is why we gather together every Sunday. And in just a few moments, we remember the Lord's sacrifice for us. This is the hope we have. And that is that the serpent-crushing Messiah, the seed of the woman, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God, our Savior Jesus Christ, in the fullness of time, would come to put an end to the curse by becoming accursed himself, being hung on another tree, and that he would work the works of him who sent him while it was day. That is our resurrection hope. And so as we move from creation to the new creation, 
as we learn about Adam being put in this garden to be given work to do, I wanted to just take a moment and look at this concept of work and give us a theology of work as we look at the spectrum of time. We can take all of existence and we can break it into four categories, can't we? We look at all of everything and we say it falls into creation, the fall, redemption, and consummation. What chapter are you in your life? Where am I in, and where's God in my story? Where are you in God's story? Uh, where are you in the, the theme here? Well, we of course are in that in between redemption and consummation. But let's just for a minute uh, camp out on this. Creation. What does work like in creation? Well, work in creation is the God given priestly care to cultivate flourishing and to sow shalom. So God fashions man, he uh, creates him in his image, he places him in a spacious, well watered paradise. And then he puts him to work to keep the ground. And then, as we'll see next week, he graciously supplies a helper to come and work alongside him. So cultivate flourishing. Work the ground. Stir the soil. Take the raw materials that you were given and produce something sustainable and healthy with what you've been handed. So not just work it, but keep it. So protect it. Protect it from intruders like weeds and locusts and pestilence and crows and even serpents. The Adam failed to protect the garden free of serpents and thus working near that forbidden tree, eventually we have the fall. And so the second idea is the fall. Because of the fall, work is now cursed. It was created without the curse, but now we have frustration and futility. So you can work as hard as you want and you may never experience shalom. You, now as you plant things, thorns and thistles grow up with them. And weeds come and flourish just like the grass does. And so Adam, as we've learned, he failed in his priestly role. He was no longer keeping or working the garden. He was still cultivating flourishing and sowing shalom as image bearers were going out into the ends of the earth. But now his work is marred. We know that's not the end of the story, though, don't we? We know that Christ came to make all things new. And so we now look at redemption. And in redemption, all of our work now is for the glory of God and to benefit others. The essence of work, of all, we all have different work, but the essence of what we're doing is to produce something good with what God has given us. So we're all employed by various employers, but in reality, we're actually all full-time Christians, so it's not that we're part-time, oh, we just go to church Sunday. No, we're full-time Christians. So you might be part-time or full-time as a doctor, but you are a full-time Christian. And that means the gospel bears a huge weight upon your work. It's not merely only an, ave an avenue for you to share the gospel. That's not all it is. That's not the only redeeming part of work. We have been given something by the hand of God graciously to produce more good and more glory. Incidentally, Daniel Aiken, in his book, A Theology for the Church, he says this. This is a helpful line to draw. He says, any work that denigrates, that destroys or injures others, or that requires unethical behavior from you should not be a job performed by Christians. I think that's helpful. In fact, there's an unhelpful division between secular and sacred. And so many people would think, I want to stop working so I can go into ministry. You see why there's two problems with that? I'm gonna stop working to go into ministry. That's assuming that you're not doing ministry in your current role. But that's also assuming that 
people in ministry don't do any work. <laughs> and I can attest to you that is not the case whatsoever. The reformers helped recapture what a theology of work looked like biblically. In fact, Luther himself, he said, the works of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field or the woman going about her household tasks. All works are measured before God by faith alone. Amen. 30 years later, Calvin would refine this further and he would, I don't have it on the screen, but he would say, according to the scriptural perspective, work becomes a way station of spiritual witness and service, a daily traveled bridge between theology and social ethics. In other words, he says, work for the believer is a sacred stewardship. And in fulfilling his or her job, he will either accredit or violate the Christian witness. That being said, one person pointed out that most Americans tend to worship their work, work at their play, and play at their worship. As a result, their lifestyles resemble a cast of characters in search of a plot. Wow. Does that describe you and your job? Can we stop with the word job? I think we need to go to the little older word vocation. In the Latin, it means a calling. Do you look at your work as a, just a job to perform or as a high calling? Moms, those of you who are homemakers, you're keeping your home. You're building shalom and flourishing in your home. That is a high calling by God. If you are called to sell shoes, which I've done in the past and some great men of God have been known to sell shoes, uh, I guess I'm in that camp. Um, you're, you're to sell shoes to the glory of God. You might say, man, I'm just a guy who takes out trash. I pick up trash on the side of the road. You are helping create flourishing in our city because if your role was not here, believe me, we would definitely feel it. So we have been redeemed. And as those who have been redeemed, let's redeem the time that God has given us. Let's glorify him in our vocation. But as we learned last week, let's also learn to glorify God in our recreation, not only in our work, but also in our rest from work. You see, we have to learn the grace of rest as well. A Christian who's a workaholic, you're one of three things. You're either prideful, meaning I have to keep up with the rat race and I've got I've to make it happen. I've got to look like I'm performing. And so it's pride. Or secondly, if you're a Christian workaholic, it's unbelief that plagues you. Unbelief, yes, you're failing to submit your life to trusting that God would be sufficient to supply your needs. Maybe not your greeds, but God will be sufficient. So maybe it's unbelief, or maybe worse, it's idolatry. Meaning your ultimate worth is to be found in Christ and you're finding it in your work. Your identity is not what you do. It's being a son or daughter of our gracious father. Paul told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Our labor in the Lord is not in vain. So if you're doing something from selfish ambition or conceit, it's vanity. But he says, our labor in the Lord, the things we do unto Christ are never in vain. So does that mean heaven's a holy retirement? We just get to kick back on a hammock between two palm trees and drink coconut water? Is that, is that what uh, the end looks like? Well, we're, we have one more era and that's consummation. You see, in the age to come, we learn in the scripture that marriage and procreation will cease, but the cultural mandate will continue. It's not fill the earth and subdue it anymore. It's work and keep 
the new heavens and the new earth. Isaiah 65 says, my chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune as many have in creation. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. So incidentally, in the new heavens and the new earth, there's gonna be some jobs that end. Jobs like doctor, lawyer, counselor, light bulb replacer, prosthetic uh, manufacturer. Those jobs will all come to an end because we'll all be whole and Christ himself will be our light. But that means meaningful kingdom work can be done without being futile or frustrated. We don't look back to Eden and wish we could go back uh, to Eden. No, we actually look ahead at a far more glorious end that is a fulfillment of what was foreshadowed here in Genesis 2. You see, Revelation 22, I encourage you to read it this week. It shows us what Eden fulfilled looks like. And Horatius Bonar says this. He says, paradise with all its beauty and abundance was but a faint expression of God's love when compared with his unspeakable gift or with the more glorious paradise yet in reserve. Isn't that wonderful news? There's a glorious paradise yet in reserve for the people of God. He says, the earthly tree of life is as nothing compared with the heavenly original which shall ere long be ours when as the overcoming ones we shall eat of this tree of life which is in the garden and paradise of God. As we close, we come to the Lord's table this morning to remember and to receive Christ's atoning work and his invitation for us to come and be united with him in his death and resurrection. Before we partake in communion, in just a moment, our worship team is gonna come together and we're gonna sing as a congregation a few lines from William Cooper's hymn. The hymn is Praise for the Fountain Open. But listen to these words from the third stanza. He sings, Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power until all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. You and I this morning, if you're in Christ, if you've repented of your sin, you've trusted Christ and his ransoming blood to save you from the wrath of God, we are together gonna proclaim this as we proclaim his death until he comes. We're gonna receive the communion. If you're not a believer, you're not a follower of Christ, uh, we would ask you just to abstain from this uh, time. And so as we, as we distribute the cups in the trays in just a moment by our ushers, we want you just to hold on to those. And then Shane is going to lead us together. One day as his ransomed church, we will sin no more. Isn't that a glorious reality to think about? The hymn goes on to say this, and I can relate to this. When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. You see, we're all sinners and those who are in Christ have been plunged beneath the fountain of Christ's blood and we've lost our guilty stains. We've experienced that now, but one day, even not yet, when we're glorified, when our salvation is complete, we'll spend all of eternity declaring both his work as well as his worth. And so to that end, let's give glory to God in prayer. So bow your heads with me as we conclude. Father, we thank you that you are the potter, we're the clay. We are the work of your hand. Father, you graciously supply us with everything good. In such a small way, you've given us the sun with its warmth and light that supplies us 
with all the energy needed to sustain our life on this planet. You breathe the breath of life into Adam and within every single human being, every one of us here in our mother's womb, you breathe the breath of life as we were fearfully and wonderfully knit together in your image. But Father, with all these good gifts, we thank you this morning for the greatest gift of goodness in the person of your dear son. As the scriptures declare, being in very nature God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being found in human likeness. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death upon a cross. And therefore, God, you have exalted him to the highest place. You've given him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue that has ever been created will utter, Jesus Christ is Lord. And that is to the glory of you, our gracious Father. So we thank you that we this morning can rest in the finished work of Christ, that Jesus' shed blood alone provides our wondrous atonement. We thank you for your precious gift. We look ahead at your glorious and imminent return. Lord, we know that with the saints and with creation, we groan as we await that final and consummate adoption as sons, as co-heirs. When you wipe away every tear from our eyes, where death is no more, where paradise is finally fulfilled. Until that day, Lord, give us faith, hope, and love. Give us strength and encouragement and strengthen us for the work that you have stewarded to each one of us. May we not look at our work with groaning, but with joy to give you the glory. It's in Christ's matchless name that we pray these things. for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.